Hi. Hello. Welcome to Infinite Cast Part 10. Wow. We've got the uh, champagne popped here. Yes. It is our uh, first Infinite Cast of the uh, the Dover Imperium. <laughs> yes. Of the, of the Bidenite Regency. Hey, it's not been called yet. The champagne is not not even remotely Molly made it clear that this. the champagne is explicitly not for the election. Certainly not. Of Joseph Robinette Biden. It's not. Uh, but rather for a, a, a spell. It's a spell I'm casting. Great. Don't worry about it. I will not. I will not ask questions, but I will enjoy the, the champagne. Enjoy. It's good. Uh, thank you for our lovely responses to our, our mega <laughs> packed episode from uh, last last week. I've yes. gotten a number of messages from a number of people, and the ones I like best are the ones saying, wow, I've read this several times, and you guys going through that got me stuff that I've never heard of before. Well, I learned that the end notes are not included in the official audiobook of Infinite Jest, which to me seems now completely insane. You have to buy it separately. Yeah, they're DLC for the audiobook. Why would you have to pay more money? It should come, even if it's a separate file, it should come automatically. Yes. I'm horrified. Yes. We're making it right. All right. So should we hop in? We sure should. Uh, uh, after our one-page chapter about James Owen Condenza in mm-hmm. the 30 pages 40 pages of his filmography, we are ready to get back into the narrative. Let's get back into it. Denver, Colorado, 1st of November, year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. I hate this, Warren yells out to whoever glides near. He doesn't loop or spiral like the showboats. He sort of tacks the gliding equivalent of snow plowing, unspectacular and aiming to get it over with, ASAP and intact. The fake Red Wings nylon clatters in an updraft. Ill-glued feathers keep peeling off and rising. The updraft is the oxides from mile highs, thousands of open mouths. Far and away, the loudest stadium any place. He feels like a dick. The beak makes it hard to breathe and see. Two reserve ends do some kind of combined barrel roll thing. The worst is the moment right before they make the jump off the stadium's rim. Hands in the top rows reaching and clutching, people laughing, the interlace cameras panning and tightening. Oren knows too well the light on the side that means zoom. Once they're out over the field, the voices melt and merge into oxides and updraft. The left guard is soaring up instead of down. A couple beaks and a claw fall off somebody and go pinwheeling down toward the green. Oren tacks grimly back and forth. He's among those who steadfastly refuse to whistle or squawk, bonus or no. The stadium loudspeakers, a a steely gargle. You can never hear it clearly, even on the ground. The sad old ex-QB who now just holds on place kicks falls in besides Oren's slow back and forth about 100 meters over the 40. He's one of the token females, his beak blunter and wings red non-garish. Hate and loathe this with a cluster-fucking passion, Clate. The holder tries to make a resigned wing gesture and is almost blown into Oren's pin feathers. Almost down. Enjoy the ride. Yo. Cleavage check in 22G, just by the... And then lost in the roar as the first player touches down and sheds the red-feathered promotional apparatus. You have to scream to even be heard. At some point, it starts sounding like the crowd's roaring at its own roar, a doubling back quality, like something will blow. 
one of the Broncos in the rear end of a costume takes a header at midfield, so it looks like the thing's ass went flying off. Oren has told no cardinal, not even the team's counselor and visualization therapist, about his morbid fear of heights and high-altitude descent. I punt. I'm paid to punt long, high, well, and always. Making me do personal interviews on my personal sides bad enough. But this crosses every line. Why do we stand for this? I'm an athlete. I'm not a freak show performer. Nobody mentioned flying at the trade table. In New Orleans, it was just robes and halos and once a season, a zither. But just once a season. This is fucking awful. Could be worse. Spiraling down toward the line of X's and the bill-capped guys that help strip the wings off. Runty, pot-bellied, volunteer, front office-connected guys who always smirk in a way you couldn't quite level the accusation. I'm paid to punt. It's worse in Philly. Had fucking water drops in Seattle for three seasons. Please, Lord, spare the leg, Oren whispers each time just before touchdown. Of how you could be an oiler. You could be a brown. Do you understand what just happened there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they make the football players run in as their mascots. They fly in. Yeah, some kind of glider <laughs> contraption, yeah. Let's continue. The organopsychedelic musimol, an isozaxol, oh my God, an isozazol alkaloid derived from Amanita muscaria, aka the fly agaric mushroom, by no means, Michael Pemulus emphasizes, to be confused with phylloides or verna or certain other kill-you-dead species of North America's Am- Amanita genus, as the little kids sit there Indian-style on the viewing room floor, glassy-eyed and trying not to yawn, goes by the structural moniker 5-aminomethyl-3-isozazolol, requires about like maybe 10 to 20 oral milligrams per ingestion, making it two to three times as potent as psilocybin and frequently results in the following alterations in consciousness, not reading or referring to notes in any way, a kind of semi-sleep-like trance with visions, elation, sensations of physical lightness and increased strength, heightened sensual perceptions, synesthesia, and favorable distortions in body image. This is supposed to be a pre-dinner big buddy powwow where the littler kids receive general big brotherly type support and counsel from an upperclassman. Pemulus sometimes treats his group's powwows like a kind of colloquium, sharing personal findings and interests. The viewers on read from the room's laptop and the screen's got block capitaled methoxylated bases for phenylkylamine manipulation on it. And underneath some stuff that might as well be Greek to the little buds, two of the kids squeeze tennis balls, two rock and bob Hasidically to stay alert. One has a hat with a pair of fake antennae made of tight-coiled spring. More or less revered by the aboriginal tribes of what's now southern Quebec and the Great Concavity, Pemulus tells them, the fly agaric shroom was both loved and hated for its powerful, but not always unless carefully titrated, pleasant psycho-spiritual effects. A boy probes at his own navel with great interest. Another pretends to fall over. Some of the more marginal players start in as early as maybe 12, I'm sorry to say, particularly drins before matches, and then encephalin, which takes us to end note 26, 
Enkephalin, synthetically enhanced enkephalin, an opiate-like pentapeptide or so-called endorphin manufactured in a human spine. One of the compounds prominently involved in the famous Cadavergate scandal <laughs> that brought down so many funeral directors in the year of the Purdue Wonder Chicken. Enkephalin <laughs> <laughs> uh, after, which can generate a whole vicious circle of individual neurochemistry. But I myself, having taken certain vows early on concerning fathers and differences, didn't even get downwind of my first bit of Bob Hope, which takes us to EndNote 27. Now we have no hopes, no cash, no jobs. Uh, Metro Boston subdialectical argo. Uh, <laughs> origin unknown for cannabis, pot, grass, Dubois, dope, ganja, bang, bong, bahong, herb, hash, uh, M. Jane, Keefe, etc., with Bing Crosby designating cocaine and organic methoxies, Drins, and inexplicably Doris standing for synthetic Dickies, Sykes, and Fennels. Okay. Uh, downwind of my first bit of Bob Hope until 15, more like nearly 16, when Bridget Boone, in whose room a lot of the 16 and unders used to congregate before lights out, invited me to consider a couple of late-night bongs as a kind of psychodysleptic somnex to help me sleep, perhaps, finally, all the way through a really unpleasant dream that had been recurring nightly and waking me up in medias for weeks and was beginning to grind me down and to cause some slight deterioration in performance and rank. Low-grade synthetic bob or no, the bongs worked like a charm. In this dream, which every now and then still recurs, I am standing publicly at the baseline of a gargantuan tennis court. I'm in a competitive match, clearly. There are spectators, officials. The court is about the size of a football field, though maybe it seems. It's hard to tell, but mainly the court's complex. The lines that bound and define play are on this court as complex and convolved as a sculpture of string. There are lines going every which way, and they run oblique or meet and form relationships and boxes and rivers and tributaries and systems inside systems. Lines, corners, alleys, and angles deliquesce, <laughs> deliquesce into a blur at the horizon of the distant net. I stand there tentatively. The whole thing is almost too involved to try to take in all at once. It's simply huge, and it's public. A silent crowd resolves itself at what may be the court's periphery, dressed in summer's citrus colors, motionless and highly attentive. A battalion of linesmen stare blandly alert in their blazers and safari hats, hands folded over their slacks' flies, high, over, flies. <laughs> high overhead, near what might be a net post, the umpire, blue-blazered, wired for amplification in his tall high chair, whispers, play. The crowd is a tableau, motionless and attentive. I twirl my stick in my hand and bounce a fresh yellow ball and try to figure out where in all that mess of lines I'm supposed to direct service. I can make out in the stands, stage left, the white sun umbrella of the moms. Her height raises the white umbrella above her neighbors. She sits in her small circle of shadow, hair white and legs crossed, and a delicate fist upraised and tight in total unconditional support. The umpire whispers, please play. We sort of play, but it's all hypothetical somehow. Even the we is theory. I never quite get to see the distant opponent for all the apparatus of the game. Year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. 
So that was like three different narratives in one chapter. Right? And I think that was Hal. I think I'm pretty sure that was Hal as opposed to Oren in that last one. Okay. But yes. Yes. That's one of the... He he's he throws in like one or two sentences at the end of some chapters before this, but that's really the first time that we're really bouncing around in a single chapter, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it's confusing. <laughs> I'll try to mark it orally best I can. No, it's fine. I I got it. All right, year of the depend adult undergarment. Doctors tend to enter the arenas of their profession's practice with a brisk good cheer that they then have to stop and try to mute a bit when the arena they're entering is a hospital's fifth floor, a psych ward, where brisk good cheer would amount to a kind of gloating. This is why doctors on psych wards so often wear a vaguely fake frown of puzzled concentration if and when you see them in fifth floor halls. And this is why a hospital MD, who's usually hale and pink-cheeked and poreless, and who almost always smells unusually clean and good, approaches any psych patient under his care with a professional manner somewhere between bland and deep, a distant but sincere concern that's divided evenly between the patient's subjective discomfort and the hard facts of the case. The doctor, who poked his fine head just inside her hot room's open door and knocked maybe a little too gently on the metal jam, found Kate Gompert lying on her side on the slim, hard bed in blue jeans and a sleeveless blouse with her knees drawn up to her abdomen and her fingers laced around her knees. Something almost too overt about the pathos of the posture. This exact position was illustrated in some melancholic Watteau-era print on the frontispiece to Yetuv Shtanko's Field Guide to Clinical States. <laughs> Kate Gompert wore dark blue boating sneakers without socks or laces. Half her face obscured by the either green or yellow case on the plastic pillow, her hair so long unwashed it had separated into discreet shiny strands and black bangs lay like a cell's glossy bars across the visible half of the forehead. The psych ward smelled faintly of disinfectant and the community lounge's cigarette smoke, the sour odor of medical waste awaiting collection with also that perpetual slight ammoniac tang of urine and there was the double bing of the elevator and the always faraway sound of the intercom paging some md and some high volume cursing from a manic in the pink quiet room at the other end of the psych ward hall in the community lounge kate gompert's room also smelled of singed dust from the heat vent also of the oversweet perfume worn by the young mental health staffer who sat in a chair at the foot of the girl's bed, chewing blue gum and viewing a soundless ROM cartridge on a ward-issue laptop. Kate Gompert was on specials, which meant suicide watch, which meant that the girl had at some point betrayed both ideation and intent, which means she had meant she had to be uh, watched right up close by a staffer 24 hours a day until the supervising MD called off the specials. Staffers rotated specials duty every hour, ostensibly so that whoever was on duty was always fresh and keenly observant, but really because simply sitting there at the foot of a bed looking at somebody who was in so much psychic pain she wanted to commit suicide was incredibly depressing and boring and unpleasant. So they spread the odious duty out as thin as they possibly could, the staffers. They were not technically supposed to read, do paperwork, view CD-ROMs, do personal grooming, or in any way divert their attention from the patient on specials on duty. The patient, Ms. Gompert, seemed both to be fighting for breath and to be breathing rapidly enough to induce hypocapnia, 
the doctor could not be expected not to also notice that she had fairly large breasts that rose and fell rapidly inside the circle of arms with which she hugged her knees. Girls are always breasting boobily in, uh, <laughs> in novels, aren't they? They are. The girls' eyes. <laughs> Even when they're suicide cases in the psych ward. Right. Especially when. Especially. The girl's eyes, which were dull, had, had registered his appearance in the doorway, but they didn't seem to track as he came toward the bed. The staffer was also employing an emery board. The doctor told the staffer that he was going to need a few moments alone with Ms. Gompert. It is a sort of requirement that a doctor, whenever possible, be reading or at least looking down at something on his clipboard when addressing a subordinate. So the doctor was looking studiously at the patient's intake and the sheaf of charts and records med-netted over from trauma and psych wards in some other city hospitals. Gompert, Catherine A., 21, Newton, Massachusetts. Data clerical in a Wellesley Hills real estate office. Fourth hospitalization in three years. All clinical depression, unipolar. One series of electroconvulsive treatments out at Newton Wellesley Hospital two years back. On Prozac for a short time, then Zoloft, most recently Parnate with a lithium kicker. Two previous suicide attempts, the second just this past summer. Bivalium discontinued two years, Xanax discontinued one year, an admitted history of abusing prescribed meds. Depression's unipolar, fairly classic, characterized by acute dysphoria, anxiety with panic, diurnal listlessness slash agitation patterns, ideation with slash without intent. First attempt, a CO episode. Garage's automobile had stalled before lethal hemotoxicity achieved. Then last year's attempt. No scarring now visible, her wrist's vascular nodes obscured by the inside of the knees she held. She continued to stare at the doorway where he'd first appeared. This latest attempt, a straightforward meds OD, admitted via the ER three nights past. Two days on ventilation after a pump and purge. Hypertensive crisis on the second day from metabolic retox. She must have taken a hell of a lot of meds. The ICU charge nurse had beeped the the chaplain, so the retox must have been bad. Almost died twice this time, Catherine Ann Gompert. Third day spent on two west for observation. Librium reluctantly administered for a BP that was all over the map. Now here on five, his present arena. BP stable as of the last four readings. Next vitals at 1300 hours. The attempt had been serious, a real attempt. This girl had not been futzing around. A bona fide clinical admin right out of Ye- Ye- Yevtushenko or Dretsky. <laughs> over half the admits to psych wards are things like cheerleaders who swallow two bottles of Midol over a high school breakup, or gray, lonely, asexual, depressing people rendered inconsolable by the death of a pet. Oh my God. <laughs> the cathartic trauma of actually going in somewhere officially psych some understanding nods, some barely in, some bare indications somebody gives half a damn. They rally, back out they go. Three determined attempts and a course of shock spelled no such case here. The doctor's interior state was somewhere between trepidation and excitement, which manifested outwardly as a sort of blandly deep puzzled concern. <laughs> the doctor said hi and that he wanted to ascertain for sure that she was Catherine Gompert as they hadn't met before up until now. That's me, in a bit of a bitter sing-song. Her voice was oddly lit up for one who lay fetal, dead-eyed, without facial effect. The doctor said, could she tell him a little bit about why she's here with them right now? Can she remember back to what happened? She took an even deeper breath. She was attempting to communicate boredom or irritation. 
I took 110 Parnate, about 30 Lithianate capsules, some old Zoloft. I took everything I had in the world. You must have really wanted to hurt yourself then, it seems. They said downstairs the Parnate made me black out. It did a blood pressure thing. My mother heard noises upstairs and found me, she said, down on my side, chewing the rug in my room. My room's shag carpeted. She said I was on the floor, flushed red and all wet like when I was a newborn. She said she thought at first she hallucinated me as a newborn again, on my side, all red and wet. A hypertensive crisis will do that. It means your blood pressure was high enough to have killed you. Sertraline in combination with an MAOI, which takes us to... <laughs> like, yeah, I do look, like, like that clockwork. half these... Uh, Half the end notes are basically pharmacological definitions. You gotta know. Uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, a, ver- a venerable class of antidepressants slash anxiolytics, of which Parnate, SmithKline Beecham's product name for tranylcypromine sulfate, is a member. Zoloft is sertraline hydrochloride, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SRI, not all that dissimilar to Prozac, manufactured by Pfizer Rorig. Back to the text. Oh, thanks, doll. Uh, Sertraline in combination with an MAOI will kill you in enough quantities. And with the toxicity of that much lithium besides, I'd say you're pretty lucky to be here right now. My mother sometimes thinks she's hallucinating. Sertraline, by the way, is the Zoloft you kept instead of discarding as instructed when changing medications. She says I chewed a big hole out of the carpet, but who can say? (laughs) The doctor chose his second finest pen from the array in his white coat's breast pocket and made some sort of note on Kate Gompert's new chart for this particular psych ward. Crowded in among his pocket's pens was the rubber head of a diagnostic plexor. He asked Kate if she could tell him why she had wanted to hurt herself. Had she been angry at herself? At someone else? Had she ceased to feel as though her life had meaning to it? Had she heard anything like voices suggesting that she hurt herself? There was no audible response. The girl's breathing had slowed to just rapid. The doctor took an early clinical gamble and asked Kate whether it might not be easier if she rolled over and sat up so they could speak with each other more normally, face to face. I am sitting up. The doctor's pen was poised. His slow nod was studious, blandly puzzled seeming. You mean to say you feel right now as if your body is already in a sitting up position? (laughs) She rolled an eye up at him for a long moment, sighed meaningfully, and rolled and rose. Catherine Ann Gompert probably felt that here was yet another psych ward MD with zero sense of humor. This was probably because she did not understand the strict methodological limits that dictated how literal he, a doctor, had to be with the the admits on the psych ward. Nor that jokes and sarcasm were here usually too pregnant and fertile with clinical significance not to be taken seriously. Sarcasm and jokes were often the bottle in which clinical depressives sent out their most plangent screams for someone (laughs) to help, (laughs) to care and help them. Uh, True. True. The doctor, who, by the way, wasn't an MD yet, but a resident here on a 12-week psych rotation, indulged this clinical reverie while the patient made an elaborate show of getting the thin pillow out from under her, leaning it up the tall way against the bare wall behind the bed, and slumping back against it, her arms crossed over her breasts. The doctor decided that her open display of irritation with him could either signify a positive thing or nothing at all. Kate Gompert stared at a point over the man's left shoulder. 
I wasn't trying to hurt myself. I was trying to kill myself. There's a difference. The doctor asked whether she could try to explain what she felt the difference was between those two things. The delay that preceded her reply was only marginally longer than the pause in a regular civilian conversation. The doctor had no ideas about what this observation might indicate. Do you guys see different kinds of suicides? The resident made no attempt to ask Kate Gompert what she meant. She used one finger to remove some material from the corner of her mouth. I think there must be probably different types of suicides. I'm not one of the self-hating ones. The type of like, I'm shit and the world would be better off without poor me type that says that but also imagines what everyone will say at their funeral. I've met types like that on wards. Poor me, I hate me, punish me, come to my funeral. Then they show you a 20 by 25 glossy of their dead cat. It's, <laughs> it's all self-pity bullshit. It's bullshit. I didn't have any special grudges. I didn't fail an exam or get dumped by anybody. All these types hurt themselves. Still, that intriguing, unsettling combination of blank facial masking and conventionally animated vocal tone. The doctor's small nods were designed to appear not as responses, but as invitations to continue. What Dretzky called momentumizers. <laughs> I didn't want to especially hurt myself or, like, punish. I don't hate myself. I just want it out. I didn't want to play anymore is all. Play, nodding in confirmation, making small, quick notes. I wanted to just stop being conscious. I'm a whole different type. I wanted to stop feeling this way. If I could have just put myself in a really long coma, I would have done that. Or given myself shock, I would have done that instead. The doctor was writing with great industry. The last thing more I'd want is hurt. I just didn't want to feel this way anymore. I don't, I didn't believe this feeling would ever go away. I don't. I still don't. I'd rather feel nothing than this. The doctor's eyes appeared keenly interested in an abstract way. They looked severely magnified behind his attractive but thick glasses, the frames of which were steel. Patients on other floors during other rotations had sometimes complained that they sometimes felt like something in a jar he was studying intently through all that thick glass. <laughs> he was saying, this feeling of wanting to stop feeling by dying then is the way she shook, suddenly shook her head was vehement, exasperated. The feeling is why I want to. The feeling is the reason I want to die. I'm here because I want to die. That's why I'm in a room without windows and with cages over the light bulbs and no lock on the toilet door. Why they took my shoelaces and belt. But I notice they don't take away the feeling, do they? <laughs> Is the feeling you're explaining something you've experienced in your other depressions then, Catherine? The patient didn't respond right away. She slid her foot out of her shoes and touched one bare foot with the toes of the other foot. Her eyes tracked this activity. The conversation seems to, seemed to have helped her focus. Like most clinically depressed patients, she appeared to function better in focused activity than in stasis. Their normal paralyzed stasis allowed these patients' own minds to chew them apart. But it was always a titanic struggle to get them to do anything to help them focus. Most residents found the fifth floor a depressing place to do a rotation. What I'm trying to ask, I think, is whether this feeling you're communicating is the feeling you associate with your depression. Her gaze moved off. That's what you guys want to call it, I guess. 
the doctor clicked his pen slowly a few times and explained that he's more interested here in what she would choose to cause this fe- call the feeling, since it was her feeling. The resumed study of the movement of her feet. When people call it that, I always get pissed off because I always think depression sounds like you just get like really sad. You just get quiet and melancholy and just like sit quietly by the window sighing or just lying around. A state of not caring about anything. A kind of blue, kind of peaceful state. She seemed to the doctor decidedly more animated now, even as she seemed unable to meet his eyes. Her respiration had sped back up. The doctor recalled classic hyperventilatory episodes being characterized by carpopedal spasms and reminded himself to monitor the patient's hands and feet carefully during the interview for any signs of tetanic contraction, in which case the prescribed therapy would be IV calcium in a saline percentage she would need to quickly look up. Well, this, she gestured at herself, isn't a state. This is a feeling. I feel it all over in my arms and legs. That would include your carp, your hands and feet, <laughs> all over my head, throat, butt, and my stomach. It's all over everywhere. I don't know what I could call it. It's like I can't get enough outside it to call it anything. It's like horror more than sadness. It's more like horror. It's like something horrible is about to happen. The most horrible thing you can imagine. No, worse than you can imagine because there's the feeling that there's something you have to do right away to stop it, but you don't know what it is you have to do. And then it's happening too, the whole horrible time. It's about to happen and also it's happening all at the same time. So you'd say anxiety is a big part of your depressions. (laughs) (laughs) It was now not clear whether she was responding to the doctor or not. Everything gets horrible. Everything you see gets ugly. Lurid is the word. Dr. Garten said lurid one time. That's the right word for it. And everything sounds harsh, spiny and harsh sounding. Like every sound you hear all of a sudden has teeth. And smelling like I smell bad even just after I got out of the shower. It's like, what's the point of washing if everything smells like I need another shower? The doctor looked intrigued rather than concerned for a moment as he wrote all of this down. He preferred handwritten notes to a laptop because he felt MDs who typed into their laps during clinical interviews gave a cold impression. Kate Gompert's face writhed for a moment while the doctor was writing. I fear this feeling more than I fear anything, man. More than pain or my mom dying or environmental toxicity. Anything. Fear is a major part of anxiety, the doctor confirmed. Catherine Gompert seemed to come out of her dark reverie for a moment. She stared full frontal at the doctor for several seconds, and the doctor, who'd had all discomfort at being stared at by patients trained right out of him when he'd rotated through the paralysis-slash-plegia wards upstairs, (laughs) was able to look directly back at her with a kind of bland compassion, the expression of someone who was compassionate but was not, of course, feeling what she was feeling, and who honored her subjective feelings by not even trying to pretend that he was, sharing them. The young woman's expression, in turn, revealed that she had decided to take what amounted for her to her own gamble this early in a therapeutic relationship. The abstract resolve on her face now duplicated what had been on the doctor's face when he'd taken the gamble of asking her to sit up straight. Listen, she said, have you ever felt sick? I mean, nauseous, like you knew you were going to throw up? The doctor made a gesture like, well, sure. (laughs) But that's just in your stomach, Kate Gompert said. It's a horrible feeling, but it's just in your stomach. That's why the term is sick to your stomach. 
She was back to looking intently at her lower carpopedals. What I told Dr. Garten is, okay, but imagine if you felt that way all over inside, all through you, like every cell and every atom or brain cell or whatever was so nauseous it wanted to throw up, but it couldn't. You felt that way all of the time. And you're sure, you're positive the feeling will never go away. You're going to spend the rest of your natural life feeling like this. The doctor wrote down something much too brief to correspond directly to what she'd said. (laughs) He was nodding both while he wrote and when he looked up. Feels bad. (laughs) Feels bad, man. Uh, Should we we find a place to stop real quick? uh, Yeah, at the end of the page. Uh, And yet, this nauseated feeling has come and gone for you in the past. It's passed eventually during prior depressions, Catherine, has it not? But when you're in the feeling, you forget. The feeling feels like it's always been there and will always be there, and you forget. It's like this whole filter drops down over the whole way you think about everything a couple weeks after. They sat and looked at each other. The doctor felt some combination of intense clinical excitement and anxiety about perhaps saying the wrong thing at such a crucial juncture and fouling up. His last name was needle-pointed in yellow braid on the left breast of the white coat he was required to wear. I'm sorry, a couple weeks after, he waited for seven breaths. I want shock, she said finally. Isn't part of this whole concerned kindness deal that you're supposed to ask me how you think I can be of help? How I think you can be of help? Because I've been through this before. You haven't asked me yet what I want, isn't it? Well, how about either give me ECT again or give me my belt back? Because I can't stand feeling like this another second and the seconds keep coming on and on. We'll just end with an end note for ECT. End note number 29, electroconvulsive therapy. Therapy. Let's call it for Kate Gompert for now. Great. There's another like half of that chapter or something. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I will say the thing that I was thinking about throughout this section and kind of picking, picking back off of our last extended endnote thing is um, what we are to think of the narrator of this book. Right. Uh, what perspective it is narrated from and what the endnotes mean for that narration because endnotes usually imply some kind of academic or citation. Mm-hmm. But if you're citing something or noting something, it it is in its own way like an appeal to authority, correct? Yeah. So what is the authority? That's the question. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer that. You can? Or can you answer it and it's a spoiler? Um. No, I th- I would say that would be up for interpretation and debate as opposed to something uh, that is specific. that is given away. Yeah, it's weird though, right? Right. I mean, I, the 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 presence of a endnote in a fiction, a work of fiction, does I think it makes you question like what is the what is the um what is the word I'm looking for the 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 genesis of this text, right? Right. Yes. Right. Right. It's funny the that it like the third person narrative which a lot of this book is in mm-hmm. is in sort of like what I would call like an omniscient but like limited omniscient. Yeah. In that like the language that it uses is always somewhat associated with like academia um like official definitions of things. Right historical things but it it to me it reads as like one guy who like very well maybe david foster wallace kind of explaining things to you yes right yeah and then the obsession with the uh the academic 
format of the notation of the endnotes, mm-hmm. whether it's explaining various pharmacological uh, bits or the very academic ways that those um, uh, film endnotes were structured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost feels, it reminds me in that way, I think she's a little bit after, and the book is certainly after, but um, Jennifer Egan visits uh, the, the Jennifer Goon Egan Squad. Book. Yes, I read that one. Where it's, it is almost serving as like a, like a putting a pin in a, a certain like era, even though this is not technically an era that has ever existed mm-hmm. in American history. He's made it up, but he's sort of like explaining like, this is what things are like right now. This is what mm-hmm. electroconvulsive therapy is. This is what yeah. this like particular, you know. Uh, selective s- serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Do they still do ECT? I thought they don't. They didn't do that anymore. They still do. I don't think it's very common. I think it's pretty dire. I think it's if nothing else works. Yeah. Um. There was like a New Yorker article about ECT. Um. That I read a while ago. It's not. It's not out of practice. In that book, and is helpful to some people. Like actually yeah. helpful to some people. In that book, the Goon Squad was time right. Yeah, am I, I don't remembering know. that correctly? I, yeah, as the I was passage just thinking of about time. It. Yeah, the I think that was what I remember. Not I should read it again. Spoilers for a visit from the Goon Squad, but I'm pretty sure that the idea was that the the visit from the Goon Squad was time. The Goon Squad is the friends it, we made along the way. It comes it comes to us all. It's really time. like a character in and of itself. <laughs> uh, what else is this? I do like the uh, the oh the other thing I was thinking of is is Orin being irritated by the um having to. What I imagine is like hang glide in exactly in a in like a cardinal shaped hang glider. Yeah, and then also you know as I got that the Broncos come in in like two person yeah. costumes. Yeah, like the which you know it's definitely a little on the nose, but like the idea that uh, America's favorite sport gets so like absurdly well, you, clownish. You know what the thing I was thinking of during that is again he kind of saw where everything was going. That thing that they make actual, I know you have a uh, timeout. We'll, we'll go like yeah. four more minutes. The thing that they actually make football guys do now where they take like the green screen video of them, like kind of doing the shoving buddies. Yeah. Like, like half turns, like turn to the camera, like smile, the hold sketch. it. Yeah. And then they, but so every guy has to like go into a green screen theater and be like, and have like a director say, all right, now mug for 30 straight seconds. Yeah. And then they use that all season to for their identifications and yeah right when they you, run their stats and stuff you're not just a athlete you are a performer a performer and Oren is trying to maintain some kind of uh like hey, athletic purity hey and man i'm just a guy with a golden leg i just punt i punt often <laughs> and punt well, well and always <laughs> i have a particular set of skills <laughs> that make me a uh, a threat to footballs like you no but i you know, I think that obviously that's why it makes it satire is that it's so overblown. But, you know, it um, I think that that is not that far off. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how big like the post-show press conference was when he was writing this in the 90s. I feel like this is kind of the uh, maybe the rise of that as a media phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. probably with, you know, we, we, what is the name of that Michael J- Jordan documentary you were watching? The Last Dance. The Last Dance. I feel like that is the big the rise of the era of the like. Especially in uh, 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 basketball, like sp- sports star as pure celebrity, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, transcended to celebrity, and there's like press conferences being like huge celebrity moments. But like, I don't know. Remember Le- LeBron's the decision? Oh yeah, of course. Like that is not that far away. No, no, absolutely yeah. not. And all the costumes that the uh, the the basketball guys wear 
You know how they always come out and like with wonderful like, suits, wonderful suits, or they'll like the nerd look where they all have like like backpacks and like camo, nerd glasses, camo shanters, and <laughs> yeah, stuff. stuff. Like that's like costume stuff. That's basically yeah. like wearing a costume, like a, a movie costume, to your thing because you know that that is like your celeb moment. Well, we just watched There's Something About Mary, which was in 1998, probably filmed in 1997, the year after Infinite Jest came out, and Brett Favre was in it. Yeah, Brett Favre. Brett Fa- Brett Favre. Um, so I mean, that's that's all. That's you can't, all in you can't escape even even sports, which is something that we'll read a lot more, especially in the tennis realm, about how sports is somehow some kind of like ascetic, uh, like yeah. monkish pursuit. But you can't rip it away from that uh, sexy gesture spine of entertainment. <laughs> It'd be funny. <laughs> I guess that is like that. I guess that contributes to the the actual broish. I mean, it is very and a very intellectual book. But I honestly think that you could subtitle at this point, at least. Uh, subtitle of the novel, Infinite Jest, a novel about sports and drugs. Yeah, pretty much. Right? Yeah. Do you th- is that a, would you think that that is something that you could subtitle it for the entire book? Yes. Yes. Great. I mean, why do you think Kate Gompert is actually in, in the... Uh, oh, is she a stressed out sports star? Not a sports star. Drug addict? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure. Um... Yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see much more a bit Kate more of Robert. Kate. Um, it's there's such a weird the the tone in which he David Foster Wallace writes about depressed people and like people in psych wards is to me like a sort of like kind of not bitter but just kind of like I can make fun of it because I've been there. Yes, that well, but I do think that it has that right edge of being kind of mean and satirical, but it also is very sympathetic. Because, you know, he he gets into the head of, I think, uh, in that passage he writes, I think, very eloquently of that particular feeling. I've never been in a psych ward. I'm sure it's very much more acute there. But being in a medical situation and hoping or expecting some kind of sympathy, empathy, or compassion from the... uh, the medical professional who's dealing mm-hmm. with you, but also on the, at the same time understanding that they're not really That's impossible to give it to you. Yeah. That it has to be by its very nature clinical. Yes. Uh, that you're dealing with like human emotions, but it's in an institutional yes, format. Capacity. And therefore like it's not ever 100% human. But what is? But what is? What interaction yes. is? Uh, and it has to be even more acute when the clinical problem that they're taking care of is your mind. It's a terrible thing to waste. It is a terrible thing to, to waste. That's that's the honestly that if I could give uh, Infinite Jest a subtitle, it would be Infinite Jest. A mine is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> uh, maybe you should get. We should. Hopefully, this will get big enough that we can provide jacket copy on a yeah. on a uh, new edition of Infinite Jest, and you can say <laughs> this, the book the the book that really goes to show a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Mm-hmm. All right, let's All right. let's call it. Let's for call the day. for the day. A little less exaggerated or a little less drawn out than last time, but I'm sure there'll be a few other instances of this book where we can go uh, over time on it. Oh, for sure. Uh, thanks to all the people who reached out from last week's episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't reached out about last week's episode, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's it. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.